Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Dealmaker Diaries. On today's episode, I'm welcoming the one and only Hunter Thompson. He's the managing principal at Assim Capital, a prolific author and one of the most knowledgeable experts you'll find in the areas of podcasting, real estate investment, and portfolio diversification. At Assim, his number one priority has been to help clients invest much smarter, seeking out passive cash flow opportunities with an eye toward healthy ROI and avoiding stock market volatility. Having a background in economics has allowed Hunter to achieve a holistic approach to analyzing real estate data and has led him to a unique perspective on passive investing. The goal of Assim Capital is to help clients invest in passive cash flow opportunities that provide a healthy return on investment without the headaches associated with stock markets volatility. Hunter has analyzed and closed residential real estate acquisitions, hard money loans, bridge financing opportunities, commercial and residential syndications, mobile home parks, retail opportunities, and syndicated office space investments. He's worked with multiple asset teams across several geographic locations in the US and Canada. His main priority is establishing an extremely diverse portfolio without exposing clients' capital to unnecessary risk. So without further ado, let's give Mr. Hunter Thompson a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. Hey, Hunters, thanks for joining the show today. How are you? Hey, really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again. Likewise, likewise. So um, what are you working on um, recently? Anything special going on with you guys over there? Oh man, everything's going on. Just everything top to bottom has been completely insane. Um, just for context, I am a, a capital placement agent. We raise capital for operators that we partner with and joint venture with. And you know, in the middle of a raise right now, just completed a raise. So we just raised about two point four million. We'll raise another close to three million uh, this month, and then keep plugging away. And you know, probably raise some in the range of twenty five million dollars over the next over the last you know twelve months in twenty twenty one, probably. Um, we also have a, a program that teaches people how to raise capital and we just got, I think our 100th member and that's really, really exciting. And, uh, just everything's going completely crazy and I love every minute of it. Awesome. Awesome. Congrats on that. Much appreciated. So Hunter, how, how did you, how did you, or what motivated you to launch Asim Capital? And am I pronouncing that right? Asim? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the company name is ASIM, and it's short for asymmetric, and uh, basically discusses kind of the disproportionate returns to the perceived risk or the incurred risk. And you know, starting back in 2012 or so, uh, 2010, I should say, graduated college, moved out to California, and very quickly you know, recognized the incredible opportunity in the real estate sector just because of the market timing. Right. We're in the face of the Great Recession and was very much willing to go right when everyone was looking left or go left when everyone was looking right and dove into the sector, wasn't really impacted by the Great Recession because was a college student at the time 
And in California, in the market was absolutely destroyed. And when I started to go and build my network and build an investment thesis based on people around me, I felt like I was trying to avoid volatility. You know, I saw what happened in, in California, but that was not the, the norm. You know, I think 40% of all the foreclosures that took place during the Great Recession were in were in like California, Florida. And it was like a couple of states. I think five mm-hmm. states made up the majority of the foreclosures. So I wanted to avoid that and started to build a network of people that were uh, focused on recession resistant, cash flow focused syndications. At the time, uh, this was before the Jobs Act even happened. So the world of syndicated real estate, which would later be referred to as crowdfunded real estate, was very, very not talked about frequently unless you were in like an ultra high net worth type of circle, but was drawn to it. You know, I wanted to buy 15, 25, $50 million properties, but I didn't want to, to be buy the whole property. You know, I wanted to pool investors together or be pooled together and invest 25, 50, $100,000 and be a, a small participant in a very large asset so I could be diversified across multiple sectors, multiple geographic locations, multiple risk profiles, et cetera. And so that was really my introduction to the space. It was not you know, into the, n- the normal fix and flip type of thing. It was uh, kind of catapulted and, and leapfrogged into some very advanced strategies with some very savvy operators across multiple asset classes in real estate. And because I started investing that way, I built a company around that thesis where I would be the one pulling investors together to place capital with these institutional quality partners. And that became what was formerly called Cashflow Connections and now is, be, is called ASIM Capital. Okay. And so, so you've closed residential real estate acquisitions, commercial and residential syndications, mobile home parks, retail opportunities, and syndicated office-based investments as well. So of all these different investment vehicles, which would you say have provided the most exciting opportunities thus far in your experience? Well, something really interesting happened at the beginning of this expansion from an economic standpoint, which is that the first investments I felt really, really compelled by were the mobile home park business. You know, at the time, very few people were talking about the industry. It's become popularized and that's been reflected in the cap rates. But at the time, you know, the, those properties and tertiary markets in particular or secondary markets were trading at 10% cap rates, you know, 2011, 2012. And that, that's not an exaggeration. I'm talking about if you buy an, an asset in cash and don't implement any value-add strategy, you're talking about a 10% cash-on-cash return year one. Wow. So that to me was like, let's jump on a roof and stream that and try to figure out why this is happening. There's no way this is going to continue to last or I'm wrong. Right? Either isn't going to work or or it's going to work for a brief amount of time. And so for those that are not familiar, though I know a lot of your listeners likely are now, um, many of the real estate uh, that, at least the ones that we're interested in, the mobile home park business, the mobile homes themselves are not owned by the owner of the mobile home park. The homes are typically owned by the tenant and the homes are positioned on the park, which is basically a lot. And so from my perspective... I, I wanted to be in an industry where the amount of work was very, very little and the tenant base was very, very sticky. 
And though the name kind of implies that mobile homes are mobile, the reality is the economics just don't work out. Many mobile homes are probably worth, let's say, $5,000. They cost around $3,000 to move. So they just aren't moving. So if you can buy a mobile home park, which is the lot again, with a tenant base that's paying, let's say, $250, $350, $500 a month in lot rent to rent that lot from you, where you have a lot of mom and pop owners who likely haven't been aggressive with rental raises, who are probably overpaying on a lot of expenses, you can go in and turn around a park very quickly, especially since they're on monthly leases. So we would buy properties especially back then, find a property that was renting for $250 a month that should be renting for $350 a month, not raise the totality of rents in one month or anything like that, but over the next few years, bring rents up effectively 30% and you know create millions, sometimes tens of millions of dollars of value. Now that strategy is still relevant today, but the cap rates, because of how compelling this thesis was. And I don't want to say that I can take credit for, you know, making the industry aware of this, but I definitely tried my best. You know, cap rates went from 10% to let's say 6% and sometimes sub 5% and sometimes sub 4%. And so, you know, if you had significant capital invested back then, you created some really significant consequential wealth for yourself and your investors. And that's exactly what we did. So, I mean, I can talk to you now about like the opportunities today that I find compelling, but that's something that you know, I, not to toot my own horn, I just couldn't have got it more correct. That's not the only thing I've done. And it's not the only thing I've done. I've done quite a bit of things wrong. But if you go back and look at the NOI growth of mobile homes versus every other commercial real estate asset class, there's nothing like it. Now, NOI does not paint the whole picture, but it's a really important data point in terms of predictable cash flow. So um, that was kind of my first big, big win in the sector. And and with those Hunter, with those first wins, initially getting into the mobile home park space, was it um, was it more of an educational sale for in, potential investors from the start? Well, you know the issue, and this is a really important lesson to learn as well from a, an entrepreneurial standpoint. I talked about a big win. This is a big challenge I had because of the timing of all of this. You know, I found myself very fearful that I wasn't going to be able to get people to invest in syndications because not enough people knew about what they were at the time. You know, a lot of people were very skeptical of the industry, thought that it was a Ponzi scheme. And, and I had to do a lot of work to kind of educate the, the space around, like at least my audience about that. And so much so that when I originally launched my company, I didn't focus on syndications, even though I was personally investing almost exclusively in syndications. You know, everyone at the time was focusing on fix and flip houses and single family rentals. And so when I launched Cashflow Connections, that's what I went with because I assumed the learning curve was so high that I wasn't going to be able to overcome it. But the real important challenge with that was that it, I wasn't being authentic. You know, I wasn't misleading investors, there's no fraud or anything like that. But Deep down, I knew in my heart that I was very passionate about buying 15 to $50 million properties, deferring to someone else's expertise that stands to gain millions of dollars, if not more. And I was building a business around single family homes, though I wasn't really focused on that myself. And my website looked like everyone else. My blog looked like everyone else. And I was talking like everyone else. 
But deep down, the investors could tell that I wasn't really being authentic and that I wasn't passionate about it. And so the launch of my company originally really struggled. You know, I mean, we would get very few interested in investors. And I remember the first time someone said, okay, I'll invest $25,000 for you. Someone I didn't know, no friend and family just found out about me, found out about our website and said, okay, I'll invest $25,000 with you. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's on. I'm like ready to scale. I'm ready to grow. And, and here we go. And that was the first person that moved forward for months, multiple months. And so I basically recognized I've got to rethink this. I've got to be true to who I am. I've got to be authentic. And also, by the way, raising money is far more difficult than I had thought. You know, I thought I'd fallen for the myth that everyone falls for in this industry. I'm sure you've heard it as well, which is if you have a good enough deal, the money just shows up somehow. Absolutely. And so I thought I had a great deal. You know, I thought I had 10% cap rate mobile home parks, for example. And I had the opportunity to to present a deal in front of a, a tremendous group of investors with a net worth cumulatively of $30 million and nobody moved forward. And I basically recognized I've got to build out a robust infrastructure that attracts thousands and thousands and thousands of people to me. I can nurture them and educate them through follow-up sequences, email marketing, touch points, eBooks, podcasts, webinars, et cetera. So that the, by the time I put out my next deal, we'll be able to fill it up very quickly. And so that's what I've done over the last 10 years. And, and like I said, you know, we just sent out a couple of emails, raised almost $3 million and we had raised almost $3 million just 30 days ago as well. So things are working now, but it's, it was a long road to get where I am today. I'll bet. And Hunter, to touch on something. So you, you talked about um, initially you, you investors felt you weren't being authentic and you weren't passionate. So with that being said, do you think, capital raising lends itself to a specific type of personality over another type of personality? Well, the industry is very large. So I have seen people succeed in, in all different personalities. Uh, and in fact, I'll tell a story that I'll kind of paint some pictures. So when I first uh, got into this industry, I was mentored by someone whose name is Jeremy Roll. And many of you that are listening may be familiar with. Um, he's a very influential investor that's been involved in some very large transactions and, and just has a great kind of career. Um, it was also a very much early on adopter as I was as well. And Jeremy is a Wharton grad who uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure got extremely good scores on standardized tests and, and obviously went through school incredibly well and et cetera. Very detail-oriented person probably to a fault. And, and he would probably admit such very, very conservative investor, et cetera, probably to a fault. And he played a huge role in my view of the investment space. And I, I always thought, you know, I would never be able to be as good at doing business as him. I mean, he's a genius unquestionably. And so I always thought, well, look, he's doing very, very well. If I can do like 10% as good as him, I'm going to be great. You know what I mean? But I'll, I'll never be able to be quite like him because he's this genius Wharton grad, you know, probably getting close to perfect scores and standardized tests and such, but that's fine. But I had a really important moment a couple of years later, I had started to get some momentum in my career. I started, you know, I probably raised $10 million at the time. And I was on a property visit with Jeremy and myself and another person who had a very, very different personality. 
an amazing person, but wasn't this you know super genius Wharton grad, perfect score on SATs. He was a, a very compelling, charismatic public speaker, an excellent communicator, a very different skill set as opposed to Jeremy. And you know, in this SUV, we we're talking, and there were two people in this SUV that had cumulatively raised almost a quarter billion dollars. And it was a really important moment for me because these two people didn't really have what I would consider to be a very robust business, especially on the capital raising side of the business. It was them and maybe an assistant. And the reason this caught my attention was just a few months later, a few months earlier, there was a major leading venture capital funded crowdfunding portal that had announced that they had raised $200 million at the time. And they have a hundred employees and are venture capital funded. So I recognized I, number one, I'm in a, the right SUV. Number two, this business is incredibly lucrative, incredibly scalable. You do not have to bring on a hundred employees to have some incredible results for yourself and your family. But most importantly, the personalities that were in that SUV were very different from one another. And I recognized I have a place in this industry. You know, I have a place where I can not try to be some watered down version of someone else. I can be myself and have success. And, you know, I told that story in my book, but things have changed so much since that I can't really tell that story with the same lens because I myself now have raised more than $50 million. So at the time, that $100 million number, $100 million per person number was so out of this world that I had to like stretch my imagination to think what it would be like. And now I think anybody listening to this, you know, it's clear that I will be able to, to do something like that as long as we, you know, continue to be prudent and deliver on our promises to our investors. So, you know, if you're listening to this right now and you feel like perhaps you're listening to me and you're picking up on nuances in my personality and thinking, oh, Hunter has got this, that going for him and that doesn't apply to you. You know, I can tell you that I was in your position just a few years ago thinking that and making, I don't want to say excuses because we all do this as human beings. We check out because emotionally it's much easier to say this doesn't apply to me because of X than it is to recognize that you totally can and totally should be able to accomplish some pretty incredible things. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So I'm sure that's very inspiring to a lot of people listening right now. Thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. So Hunter, let's talk about the self-storage space then. So how, how did you end up getting into that sector of it as well and start syndicating those? So the self-storage business is similar to the, the remainder of my investment thesis, which is really around recession-resistant asset classes. And I always felt like I was willing to give up the potential upside that was associated with more risky, more volatile investments if it would create more predictable outcomes for myself and for my investors. And so when you think about the investment space through that lens, there are certain things, and I can give you some examples that are kind of on the outlier that will, will showcase what I'm talking about. You know, development, for example, I've never invested in development, hotels, highly cyclical. And there are certain markets that tend to be very, very cyclical as well, which I just tend to stay away from because, you know, if I can produce, let's say a 15, a 16, a 17% IRR with a high degree of predictability, I'm going to go that direction as opposed to sometimes produce a 28% IRR, sometimes produce a foreclosure. So looking at that, 
there's a couple of asset classes that historically speaking are are better positioned to weather those economic challenges. And especially if you can look at asset classes that have an inverse correlation with their demand, with the overall economy, it tends to smooth things out quite considerably. So the obvious example is the mobile home park business, right? The worse the economy does, the better and the more demand there is for mobile home parks. Now, does demand paint the entire picture of the success of an asset class? Absolutely not. We can talk about that. But it does give you a good indicator that if 2008 happens, there's going to be demand for your product. So that's the case of the mobile home park business for obvious reasons. It's also the case for the self-storage business because when people go through some kind of challenge in life, they're more likely to be downsizing. They're more likely to be moving. They're more likely to have kids move home from college unexpectedly. All of these things require and, and create demand for the self-storage product. So you know, that's kind of the thesis, but we've seen this play out in a very pronounced manner, both in 2008 and through COVID, especially with self-storage, where when people are, are shrinking their lifestyle to a large degree, when people are going through divorces, which by the way, is more common during recessions, all these, these things spur demand for the industry. And that's what I found compelling about it. You know, we started investing in that asset class in 2013 or so. And again, this is kind of odd. I mean, we, we got to talk about some of my real serious challenges as well, because um, those two right there, you know, again, like I said, if you Google NOI growth across multiple asset classes, I mean, the Green Street Advisors, which is a real estate consulting and advisory firm, they, they have a chart that kind of outlines this. The mobile home park business and the cell storage business just took off like rocket ships from an NOI standpoint. But demand is not directly related to the totality of the performance of every investment. Meaning that while multifamily didn't have nearly the NOI growth across the board as mobile homes and self-storage, they had incredible cap rate compression, which allowed multifamily investors to create some incredible returns for themselves. So um, I wasn't as heavy in the multifamily sector because I was just so bullish on those two other assets. So that would be something that I a little bit missed out on but still generally very bullish on multifamily, again, because of the recession-resistant component. Okay. So, so here we are going into September 2021. So if, if we're looking at self-storage, mobile home parks, and multi-residential real estate, do you see one of these as having huge advantages over the other at present? Well, I think the mobile home park business, we're still heavily invested there and will continue to be, but the, the way in which we're investing has changed. So I will now only be investing with very savvy, sophisticated groups that likely have at least 100 million, if not more, under management in the mobile home park business, because you have to have a real market advantage. In fact, I may only invest in groups that have a half a billion under management going forward. It's just very difficult to to find operators that are buying really quality assets that have a real serious advantage over their competitors. And so it's changed. You know, Previously, you can kind of pray and spray and the cap rates are going to save you no matter what. That's not the case anymore there, but I still really like the industry because of the nuances that we talked about previously. Um, the self-storage business has an interesting dynamic where it's very easy to develop self-storage. And because of that, creates an internal market cycle that is subject to kind of 
supply and demand imbalances, that creates an opportunity for there to be a little bit of distress in the market. There, there tends to be the situation where because you can develop self-storage very easily, it's a simplistic development, markets tend to get oversupplied, overheated, and then developers recognize it's far more difficult to rent up these units than they anticipated. They have to sell to a group like ours or one of our partners to get the, the assets actually filled up. And so that is not a part of the mobile home park business. You can't develop new ones. So basically, from my perspective, I could be wrong about this, but I think that cap rates will likely never hit 10% on a nationwide basis ever again, like not in my lifetime. So there isn't this natural swings of cap rates that creates an opportunity to buy a lot of assets. That can happen in the self-storage market at a market-specific level. Another asset class that I think is probably best positioned for the largest cap rate compression is the senior living business. So senior living is currently trading, depending on the market, seven and a half, eight caps, nine caps, depending on the type of product you're offering. And I would not be surprised if that got smushed down to five and a half caps over the next 10 years or 15 years. And that would create an incredible opportunity. So we're very bullish on senior living. You know, we just purchased an asset that you know, based on the trailing financials is an 8% cap rate. It's almost unheard of in any other asset class. Now you got to be very concerned about, you know, COVID, for example, there's all these nuances with regulatory hurdles and, and risks associated with the tenant base. They tend to pass away if you buy high acuity properties, for example. But I think that the attention to the space, the appetite for that space, especially in Florida, is going to see, you could see, it's the only asset class that I could see 300 basis point cap rate compression in right now. And especially with the risk surrounding COVID, that's the thing that's creating that opportunity. Okay. And um, speaking of COVID, so how has the last 16 to 20 months affected the way you look for and get deals done, if at all? So our strategy is basically unchanged. The percentages at which we allocate will be changed as market dynamics change, but the thesis is stable, right? That's the whole point of the thesis, right? Mm-hmm. At the beginning, I mentioned recession resistant, slow and steady wins the race. Just because a recession happens or something very weird and ahistoric like COVID and the respective lockdowns doesn't mean that we're going to change our strategy. However, if you go back and listen to my podcast, which by the way, is the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, we've done like 350 episodes. And by the way, about a million downloads, which is awesome. Um, we were very bullish on the retail sector going back to, let's say, 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019, um, because we anticipated that the risk of retail was being wildly overblown in the media. And the risks associated with the Amazon stuff was being wildly overblown. Because if you took the retail sector from broad strokes, yes, that was absolutely happening. But if you look at, let's say, some retail centers that are grocer anchored, that are filled with martial arts studios, pizza restaurants, um, nail salons, those are not at all impacted by Amazon. And so we thought that narrative was so overblown that cap rates were not reflective of the reality of the economy. So we actually didn't do a a retail deal, but we were talking about it a lot and we were doing a lot of due diligence on retail deals. And so 
you know, I mentioned some big wins. That was not a big loss because we didn't really make any investments. But if you listen to those things now, in retrospect, I look like an idiot because we all know what happened in 2020 when COVID took place and government lockdowns made it basically illegal to go to retail centers all over the country. If you invested in retail and you had listened to me, you have an investment which is likely underperforming and a cap rate environment, which is a big question mark going forward. So that percentage allocation drastically changed. You know, we're not currently investing in retail and it isn't totally off the menu as far as you know options are concerned. But the reality is what's going on in retail right now is similar to what happened to real estate in 2008 when everyone looks at the chart and goes, holy crap, what a great deal. But it's not easy to get deals done. You can't get loans. You can't raise money for those deals. So it basically just waits itself out. And what really happens, while prices may appear to be dropping, the transaction volume drops off the face of the earth. And you can wait years and still get discounted purchase prices. But it's not like it is in the stock market where everything drops by 60%. And you, like I did, by the way, invested you know, $100,000 in the S&P 500 by clicking a button. It doesn't work like that when every major lender is like, we're not touching retail. So you have to wait several years before the market starts to unwind. That's what happened in 2008. Okay. And um, so I know we're pressing on time. So I want to talk a little bit about your book, Raising Capital for Real Estate. So that was one of the first books I read when I got into multifamily syndications. Oh, cool. It was an awesome, awesome read, by the way. Thank you very much. So what inspired you to write the book? So a couple things. Um, number one, everyone has their own strengths and weaknesses in this space. And you know, I, I'm not sure if it came clear in my book, but one of my big weaknesses is like the emotional volatility of entrepreneurship. I tend to, one of my big strengths, by the way, is I tend to think everything's going to go my way. <laughs> my sunny disposition has allowed me to shoot Oh, I guess the term is like overkick my coverage over and over and over again in every avenue. Um, but sometimes because of that kind of sunny disposition, that over-optimism, I can get slapped in the face by the market or the reality or the truth of the situation. And so for me, the big one was, despite having invested passively, despite having a, an operator that I had a ton of respect for that had done more than $100 million of real estate successfully, I really struggled to raise capital in my first deal. You know, so you read my book, you know, I got in this room and it was like some friends and family and their plus ones, plus twos, very rich, wealthy individuals that I had invited and, and did marketing in towards country clubs and all that. And I fell on my face physically, not literally, but <laughs> I completely collapsed, right? Because I tried to raise my first half million dollars, thought I was going to raise a million, by the way, raised $0 and couldn't have done worse. And basically recognized while I could communicate effectively and why I did have a background in sales, there's a big difference between getting someone to buy a $500 Cutco knife, which is what I used to do, to getting someone to just fork over their hundred grand. And so I was up for the challenge, took about six months to recover emotionally from that. But I, I spent the last 10 years developing systems and processes to predictably raise millions of dollars each time we send out an opportunity and then wrote a book where, I mean, you can testify to this. All of my secrets are in the book. Like Absolutely. it is a step-by-step -step playbook of how to raise capital in today's market through 
positioning yourself as an expert, attracting investors to you, getting them, no, don't listen to them people when they say, oh, they just need to know, like, and trust you. That is nonsense. That is a total myth, just as mythical as if you have a good enough deal, the money just shows up somehow because no, like, and trust is nothing compared to what actually needs to happen. No, like, and trust is everyone that was at that luncheon that I threw where I tried to raise the money. Mm-hmm. They need to be obsessed with you. They need to think that you have no competitors. They need to think that they need to give you your hard, their hard earned hundred thousand quarter million dollars. I just sent an investor send me six hundred thousand dollars, and they had sent me six hundred thousand dollars the three months before, and we didn't have a phone call. So wow. no like and trust is nothing compared to what you have to do. And so my book is about every secret that I've used to be in a position to to raise that money, and and how you can do it as well. And it's, by the way, you can get it for free. Just pay for the shipping. It's raising capital for realestate.com. And I'm sure Donald will share you, you know, to buy that book for $8. It's like probably one of the best investments you can make. Oh yeah. The best for sure. All right. And Hunter, last question before we jump into lightning round. So if you had to start over from scratch today, what would you do different? Well, um, Number one, I would start my podcast a lot earlier. And um, that's anybody listening to this, you should be developing a thought leadership platform. Whether it be whatever your strengths are, you know, article writing, blogging, webinars, podcasts, it is such a no brainer doing virtual summits or online summits or conferences. Anything towards that is going to give you a far more pronounced result than anything else. It's crazy to think that. But it's basically a, a hack that is so pronounced that some people are like unwilling to do business with people that have a thought leadership program because it's so, it'll give you such pronounced results. Now, the percentage of people that are like, oh, you shouldn't have a podcast or whatever like that, don't worry about it. Trust me, I can speak to this. There are probably one or 2% of people out there that think it's not a good look to be in the public eye. But when, we as entrepreneurs are worried about the things we say and how we look publicly. That's not consequential because, and I'm sorry to say this, but nobody cares because nobody yes. knows us. Yes, yes, We have the misconception that everyone's thinking about us all the time. And the reality is almost no one's thinking about us. And the reality is that the key to answering all the questions about how you can raise more capital is the more people that know you and the more people that you're presenting in front of. So while we're all kind of cautious about saying the wrong thing or making the bold claims that would have us stand out, the reality is nothing can be further from the truth. You need to be putting yourself in a position where you've got some people questioning the things you're saying. You've got some haters. You've got some people that are sending you probably about 1% of your emails should be negative emails saying, I can't believe you're doing this in this fashion. And if you're not near 1%, which by the way, if your Grant Cardone is about 10%. And so you think, oh, you don't like the way Grant Cardone acts. Okay, cool. Well, he's raised a billion dollars of equity and purchased almost $3 billion worth of real estate just in the last five years. So- A long time ago, and I don't act like Grant Cardone, you've heard from this interview, but I definitely tend to say things that some people will disagree with, but at least they're either disagreeing or agreeing with me as opposed to not knowing about me. (laughs) So, because that's the way they will not raise any capital. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to bring up Grant Cardone because yeah, he's done a phenomenal job of getting himself out there. I think in the past six to seven years, just, I mean, he's just out there constantly and I'm on his email list. I probably get 10 emails from him a day. And I think 
you know, a, a lot of people would be concerned, well, if I send out that many emails, they're going to, you know, unsubscribe. But he's always said he doesn't care. He doesn't care if one person is unsubscribing. So everyone right. that for one person that unsubscribes, he's bringing on 10 more. Exactly. Exactly right. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. So let's jump in the lightning round and we'll let before we let you hop off. Let's do it. All right. So what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Well, um, I would say that the Attraction is an excellent book. Expert Secrets is an excellent book. Um, High Performance Habits is an excellent book. Um, I would also say that, you know, obviously Raising Capital for Real Estate has changed my life. It's weird for me to say that, but it's obviously the most influential book in my whole life, personally. Um, But uh, those are some really good ones. Okay. And how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Um, well, that, that really miserable fail that I had on the, um, that capital raise is something that, you know, motivated me to, to change my business and change my life. And so that's one of many, um, we have also had some, you know, we had an investment many years ago where I was the operator and it was just not my perfect skill set. My perfect skill set is doing things like what I'm doing right now in this interview. And, you know, we had to come out of pocket to make investors whole. It was a very challenging financial and emotional situation. And, you know, we decided not to do that again, where we don't, we want to identify best in class operators and then focus on them. Okay. All right. And if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Um. It would say never scramble for capital again, <laughs> raising capital for real estate.com. <laughs> oh, that's a perfect one for our industry for sure. All right. And Hunter, what is a habit or routine that you love? I love working out and particularly lifting heavy um, for low reps. So I think it's really underutilized, but just very, very good. So, um, you know, deadlifts in those rep range of like three to five and squats in the rep range of three to five, you can get some incredible results. This is definitely true for women, but it's just really pronounced in terms of, of men. Um, it's good to feel strong. And when you lift heavy, you build up your bone density and uh, just uh, your testosterone levels, like all the things that you want to feel are really, really pronounced. I have a, a friend that ended up getting hit by a car and there's no way he would have survived if he didn't lift super, super heavy. And this is actually something the doctors said as well. Um, so, I mean, look, wow. it's good, all things. So heavy squats, heavy deadlifts. Okay. And in the last few years, what new behavior, belief, or habit has most changed your life? So interesting. So I think... As from his investment standpoint, you know, the ATM business, which is an interesting sector, you know, we've raised like $15 million for that sector over the last seven months or something. That industry, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are like, oh my gosh, who uses ATMs? Well, you can learn about that whole investment thesis at our website, asymcapital.com. And I never thought I would be in the ATM business, but from my perspective, it's one of the most compelling investment theses out there right now. Yeah, I mean... I use ATM, so I'm sure quite a few people do. So Cool. All 
All right, and then the last, um, what, what are some bad recommendations you hear in your day-to-day for people new to capital raising or syndications? Well, I've talked about the, if you have the right deal, money just shows up. It's totally not true, but I'll, I'll kind of take a shot at pretty much everyone. So I'm a big proponent of using the 506C as in Charlie um, exemption, which allows you to publicly talk about your deals. And it requires that you only work with accredited investors, which most people think is a hurdle. I don't. I personally think you should only work with accredited investors. And I, I think you should be able to publicly say what you're raising capital for. So um, like I mentioned, you know, we were we have this ATM deal. It's currently available. You have to be your credit investor. It's a minimum investment of $50,000. That is such an important statement to be able to make publicly. But I could not make that statement if it was a 506B as in Bravo. So if you're in the world of raising capital, I know it hurts to have to require this third-party verification that everyone in your deal is accredited. But if you're trying to build a scalable business, it's the only way to do it. So shots fired. 506C is the only way to go. (laughs) Okay. And in the last few years, what have you become better at saying no to? Pretty much everything. Honestly, pretty much everything. I mean, and the more that I say no, the more money that I make and and the better things go. So, you know, I don't like, obviously I've enjoyed doing this podcast. I haven't done a podcast interview in quite some time because I want to do them on my terms. So anytime someone reaches out to me for a podcast, I almost never respond or almost always say no. Um, I like you. I like the shows. I want to do it, but um, I will only do podcasts when I have a very specific agenda to discuss with a lead generation tool ready to go specifically for that interview. So I'm going to do everything on my own terms, right? And I know that seems kind of um, self-centered and it 100% is, you know, I've got to recognize and everyone should recognize this, like you are the Steve Jobs of your business. So the amount of things that you do reactive on other people's schedules, it should be pretty much zero if you're the principal of your company. Now, if you're not the principal of your company, you need to still build your business around your unique ability and what you do. Right. So if you're not the principal of your company, okay, so someone else is like delegating tasks to you, that's totally fine. But you need to be operating at a high percentage, 75 to 80% or more of your unique ability, the thing you love to do. It's you're going to make more money and you're going to be happier. And so the answer is pretty much no is the most lucrative word in the English language. Yeah, I can attest to that, guys, because yeah, this this podcast was a year in the making. So it wasn't just a reach out and Hunter accepted it. So that's right. Definitely. Yeah, I appreciate the the uh, kind of patience as well. Oh, no worries at all. And um, so last question for you. So I, this is one of my favorites. So what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Holy cow. I mean, now you want to get deep. Well, all right. So I've got to keep this brief, but um, you can probably find more about this topic if you listen to a lot of interviews. So I am a very much a libertarian and I have a very libertarian worldview, not just economically, but politically, not necessarily politically. I'm very anti-political. So um, I believe that the market can solve a very complicated problems, including social problems. And I believe the government can't. Um, so, and this sounds crazy, but um, and if you've never heard of these concepts before, it's it's obviously something that almost no one believes, which is what the point of the question is. But I think that the police and military um, can also be created by the market. 
And I'm not alone in this belief. If you're interested in learning more about the topic, um, there's there's several you know economics PhDs, history PhDs. I mean, it's a small percentage of people, but uh, Tom Woods would be someone that would agree with me there. Bob Murphy would be someone else. And you can Google like, what would the private military look like? And I think if you give it an hour and like an open open mind, you'll be very, very interested to kind of, to listen to these topics. Um, you know, private companies such as if you were to privatize, you know, every bit of land, for example, private companies would be incentivized to insure that land and insurance companies would be incentivized to protect that land. And so that's kind of the model for the private military, private police stuff. And it sounds totally crazy. Trust me. I did. I wasn't born an anarchist or a, you know, capital anarcho-capitalist or whatever, but, um, you know, if you are sympathetic to the capitalist kind of creeds, that uh, those principles don't only apply to real estate. You know, the principles of supply and demand apply to things where there is a supply and a demand. So um, anyway, it's something, it's a cool little rabbit hole to go down. And um, anyway, so I hope, hope you guys are interested. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I'll check that out. And I'm definitely of the opinion that the government probably creates more problems than they solve. So I'm with you there. Yeah, 100%. All right. Excellent. Great stuff here today, Hunter. Thanks so much for coming on with us. Really appreciate that. Yeah, happy to do it. And and thanks again for the, the cool questions. All right. And before we jump off, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, to invest with you, hear more about your podcast, what's the best way for them to um, find you or get in contact with you? So um, asimcapital.com is our private equity company. And then if you'd like to learn more about the raising capital side of the business, it's ASYM, excuse me, it's raisingcapitalforrealestate.com. Plus, we have a webinar coming up that is live, 100% live, where I'm going to give away all of the secrets that we've used to raise, I think, about $52 million from accredited investors, not family offices, not one or two investors. The webinar, you can get access to it for free at raisingcapitalforrealestate.com forward slash never dash scramble. Okay, excellent. And where can they uh, where can they find your podcast, Cashflow Connections? That is um, cashflowconnections.com. All right. Excellent. All right, Hunter. So thanks so much. I'm going to let you get off and get to it. I know you got a lot going on. So thanks for joining us and I'll be talking to you soon. Hey, thanks again for the opportunity. All right. Take care, Hunter. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves. <laughs>